morning, you guys. Boy, the church looks good. Christmas time. I like Thanksgiving. We hurry up and kick it to the curb and jump right into the Christmas season. I think this evening is the beginning of Hanukkah, so uh, glad for that also, but uh, we're here for, to hear from the Lord. Uh, we're in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. I was hoping and praying that we would have a video. I, I would have just loved to see what people would have said about this chapter. Romans is a, Romans 12, especially the two beginning verses are very well known. The fame of these two verses speaks volumes to the remainder of the chapter. And it's, those two verses of Romans 12, they're pivotal because they look back to the first chapters of 11 thematically. And then they look on from chapter 12 all the way up to Romans 15 around verse 13. So all of, of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 links the beginning of the first 11 chapters all the way up to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, so it's very important. The first chapter, well, the first thing about chapter one, where Paul shows, remember, the downward spiral of false worship, false and foolish worship. And he begins to speak of what it looks like. And he said this in verse 25 of chapter one, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he begins to speak of what a corrupted mind, an unregenerate mind looks like when he says in verse 28 of that same chapter, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, a corrupted mind, to do those things which are not fitting. But the Christian now finds a reversal because of that renewed mind that chapter 6 of Romans speaks about. So that now we can worship Jesus Christ with acceptable and reasonable worship. The second pinpoint is in Romans 6, when Paul speaks about the believers need to present themselves, ourselves. Verse 13 and verse 19 of chapter 6 tells us, as those alive from the dead. It reiterates here and it expands on it. And at the same time, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 stands as the heading for all that Paul will speak about up to chapter 13. So he starts off in verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you, or I urge you, therefore, this is the third, therefore we have one more left, brethren, by the mercies of God. Oye termos, that's the Greek word, the compassion, the bowels of mercy when you feel things so much that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. 
Then I love it when he says, which is your reasonable service. Therefore, must be given its desirable weight right here. It's full weight. Because Paul wants to show us that the exhortation of verses 1 all the way up to chapter 15 are built firmly on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. Once again, he says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, parakaleo, beseech is the Greek word. The English word, we can use that as exhort. And it's somewhere between a command and a request, Paul is saying here. And and he's commanding or he's requesting not as a superior to a subordinate, but as a pastor to his congregation. It's a command. He says, by the mercies of God. Once again, this connects between what Paul now asks us to do and what he has told us earlier in his letter that God has done for us. All that he has written in this letter thus far may be summed up under the heading of the mercies of God in action. Everything that he's done. And he summarizes this in chapter 11 in verse 30 and 32. The universal mercies of God. When he says, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have you now obtained, there's the word mercy, through there, the Jew, disobedience. Even so, these also have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, Gentiles, they also, the Jew, may obtain mercy. He will say mercy four times here. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And then Paul expresses this profound knowledge of praise to God when he begins to say in verse 33, all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now he calls us to respond by the mercies of God. And it's better translated here because or in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercy God calls us, the believer, to a commitment this morning. And we will see this throughout this letter. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 tells us, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, once again, beseech you, urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, which is grace anyway. The greater our comprehension of what God has did for us, if we really comprehend that, it should be the greater our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when uh, Jesus visited Simon, the Pharisees, he goes to his house. He requests them to come over to his house. He comes over to his home. He did not wash his feet. He did not put ointment on his head. He did not give him a welcoming kiss because he didn't value our Savior much. Luke chapter 7, verse 44 through 47, after the end of the supper, Jesus tells him this, because he was focused on, 
on this woman. He couldn't even enjoy his meal because he could not believe this prostitute has, has come into his home. But he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. By the mercies of God. He's not asking for us to do a favor, but this is more of an obligation that we should do for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. He's given us eternal life. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. He's called us. He's drawn us to himself, and now he begins to request something of us, and God's mercy is not a matter of past benefits either but it continues to exercise its power in and through us. So it's just not, okay, he's given us eternal life. We don't need his mercies anymore. I don't know about you guys. I need his mercy all the time. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But God's mercy does not automatically produce the obedience God expects. And that's clear from the commands that Paul is telling us here. But through God's mercies, he manifests through the Holy Spirit work inside of us, that inward renewal. We will look at in verse two, and it impels us to continue to walk in the obedience of God. That's what the gospel demands. Once again, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember, Paul is writing to these home churches in Rome. Paul is speaking and he's saying, hey, there's bickering going on here. Remember who has called you. Remember who has gave you grace. And now he's giving you this living mercies that you can walk up right before him. And now, when Paul says to present your bodies a living sacrifice, right away, these churches in Rome understood what he was speaking of. It was a complete burnt offering he speaks of, which speaks of total dedication to the Lord. In this offering, in the fellowship offering, you got to eat with the Lord. In the peace offering, you, you, you had your opportunity to eat with the Lord. But the burnt offering, everything but the hide was consumed. And that's what the Lord is speaking and telling us this morning. We don't make literal sacrifices anymore because Jesus Christ has come and he's fulfilled all the sacrifices. He's fulfilled the law. But we do and we should 
make spiritual sacrifices all the time. But the sacrifices we offer now is our bodies themselves. It is not only what we can give God, but he wants us to give all of who we are, ourselves, to him. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. To present, that, that's a technical term used for ritual presentation of a sacrifice. Your body's referring more than the skin and bones, but the entire person. But I want you to catch this part. The entire person when it comes to touching this world. That's our problem. That's our sacrifice. We are in it, but we shouldn't be of it. We should understand where we live and all of the distractions and the going-ons in this world. And the Lord says, I want you to live in it, but I want you to be a living sacrifice to it. We should be dead to the age of this world. Our interactions with this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says it beautifully. Do not love the world. Agape. Do not be committed to this thing or the things in the world. Now think about all the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James makes it even clearer. And, and, and when James and when uh, John is speaking, he's not speaking to unbelievers here. He's speaking to the believer. He's speaking to the church. And notice what he says. Adulterers and adulteresses. We've got something going on that we shouldn't. We love the Lord, and yet we want to love the world. And God calls us out on that. God says, no, 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 that's not right. And he, and he explains to us why it's not right. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity. Once again, enmity, there can be no reconciliation. I cannot love the Lord and love the world. That's what he says here. Enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul is exhorting these home churches in Rome, and I am exhorting us this morning at CR. In light of the mercies of God that he has lavished on us, he now requires something from us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Paul has told us in the sixth chapter of Romans, verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We as believers have the capacity to do that. And that's what God accepts from us. We are also to be holy, he says, in that we have renounced sin and are set apart. That's what the word holy means to God. And then he says, holy and acceptable, well-pleasing. Not because we deserve to be accepted, 
but because the offerings that God has required has been met in his son, Jesus Christ, and we have believed on him, the one that the Father has sent. This is a bold call to total commitment this morning, and it applies equally, not just to the pastor, but everyone who calls himself a child of God. This total burnt offering is what's required of us. And I'm here to tell you this morning, God will not accept anything less than that. It's something we must work on and continuously work on. Am I getting too close? Am I getting too fond of the world and the things of the world? I should give myself that litmus test, that self-examination every day I go out into the world. That's what's required of us this morning. True worship is offering ourselves to God, which is reasonable and it's logical because it is consistent with proper understanding of the truth of God as revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If we are logical, halfway commitment has to be irrational. If we are truly logical, we will understand that God will accept nothing but total worship, not lackluster worship to him. To decide to give part of your life to God and keep other parts for yourself is illogical and irrational. Every, for us to say everything is yours, Lord, but not this relationship, not this financial situation, not this pleasure is beyond spiritual logic. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying this morning. If we are worshiping a part from commitment to God, Eli and his boys in 1 Samuel calls this by the power of the Holy Spirit, false worship. That's what they did. That's what Hophni and Phinehas did. And they continued to do it, and they continued to do it, and they continued to say they believed in the Lord until they ran into that heavy hand of judgment. And the Lord says, hey, You're not worshiping me. You have false worship, and I will not accept that. We are deceiving ourselves if we are doing Christian things but are not consecrated to Jesus Christ. It's nothing but false worship. And the only possible way we can present reasonable worship to our Savior is through a renewed mind that we have if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ. That's why he's exhorting us to do that. He says in verse two, and do not be conformed to this world. Conform comes from the root word schema. We get schematic or scheme. 
and world should be of this age, referring to this passing age. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away, 1 John tells us. Galatians 1 verse 4 says this, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, this thing that we have to walk around in, this thing that we should be cautious of and walk circumspectly in it because it is dominated by Satan. Matter of fact, it's his world. The Bible calls him, he's the the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He orchestrates it. The thing that we still have a pull to but we should touch it gently and lightly. And we who belong to Christ, remember we have been transferred from the old age, if we're born again, to the new age. And it's like almost a magnetic pull because even though we've been transferred from the old age to the new age, that's literal, positive, if you're a believer, The only thing that didn't get transferred into that new age is what? These old bodies. And these old bodies, we'll get that new glorified body one day. But until we do that, while we're walking in this world, this old body still has a pull, a magnetic pull to that old age. That's what we struggle with. That is why Our minds need to be renewed day in and day out, being washed by the water of the world. That's what he's saying here. So the influence of the old realm will not capture us and make us look like unbelievers. We do God no good if we are called believers and walking around in this world looking like unbelievers. That's what he says here, not to be conformed to this world. Then he begins to build his theology of Romans 5 through 8, and especially Romans 6. Remember, he he said things like this, we've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul calls on us to resist the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of this age and the pattern of behavior that typifies it, to be conformed. It's this outside pressure that wants us to live and look like the unsaved world. But it's also destructive to us. We must fight against it with everything we have. And I understand it can be difficult at times to know when we are conforming because there are many good things in this world. Like Alabama football. <laughs> yeah. I stayed up until 8.30 watching the game. I might as well commit, uh, confess to it. But my point is, even that, 
even things that I enjoy, I got to put first things first. He, Jesus Christ, has to be my all in all. I should have no other God in his presence. So if my team wins or lose, if things go south in this world, whether it's my health, my health of my family, my health of my friends, whether the economy, my economy just goes upside down, Lord, prepare me, understanding that it's you who feed me. It is you who clothe me. It is you who gives me my very breath. It is you that's going to give me that eternal kingdom somewhere one of these days. And so it doesn't matter. I have to walk circumspectly down here. I have to be very careful and even suspicious to the fashionable and current conformities of this world. I think about how social media has ruined so many believers. I think about the entertainment community, the universities and their ideologies. And now even from preschool up until the universities, we, we are saturated with all of those things. How can we not be not saturated in the word of God? If we're letting all of those other things bombard us and not be in the word and not be in prayer, how can your walk not look like the unbeliever? He's calling on us to be what he's called us to be, a living sacrifice. And this is how we should do it, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, metamorphio. Now, we already have that renewed mind if we're born again. But as the scripture speaks here, that's not enough. If you want to live holy and acceptable lives, pleasing to the Lord, we must have our minds renewed in the word. That word is like when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly or a frog, a tadpole into a frog, and either one, they still look ugly to me. I do not like frogs. Anybody who knows me knows that. They disgust me. But the point is, even fuller, richer, is when Jesus Christ goes on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he begins to transform. Matthew 17 verses 1 through 2 tells us this. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. We should be maturing into this transformation in Christ. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says this, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image. Can you imagine that? From glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. This must be done, of course, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit as we submit to him. If you're born again, the spirit is inside of us. But if we're wanting to be transformed into the image of Christ, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to make us do anything. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit and let him bring about that renewal of our mind. As mature believers, we should be constantly being washed by the water of the word. And ultimately, as Romans 8, 29 speaks of, instead of metamorphosis, when we are changed into that image of Christ, sumorphosis, we will be just like him. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what we have in store for us by yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. As we are in God's word and as we are in prayer, we will see the effects of this life. He says, as we're being transformed by the word that you may prove the reason we are being transformed, then we will prove to test, to examine, to scrutinize what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We'll go all the way back to the book of Job. And Job is trying to get, a, a Satan is trying to touch Job and get to Job, but he can't do it because we know the Lord has put a hedge around him. And Satan says, if you just remove that hedge, the reason I can't get to him because you put a hedge around him. And the Lord says, have you been scrutinizing? Have you been examining Have you been trying to find an opening to get to my servant Job? Well, that's what the believer should do when he goes out, when we go out into this world. We should be scrutinizing it. We should be examining it. Should I touch that? Should I do this? Should I watch that? Should I listen to that? Is that going to be my downfall if I Play with that. That's how believers should operate. I think I've told most of you guys before, probably three years out as I was a believer, when I was, uh, as I was a believer in Christ, I had this dream, and I don't have many dreams, but I had this dream that I was a fish and there was a bait in the water and I kept playing with it and run away with it, play with it nibble on it. The hook still couldn't get me. I will remember this dream until the day the Lord takes me home. But what I remember most about that dream, when I finally got hooked, it was the hook taking me wherever it wanted to go. That's what sin wants. I had no kind of resistance. I finally jumped off of it back into the water. That's why we should scrutinize everything we do in this world. The Bible calls it walk circumspectly in it. My dad used to say, don't let 
Don't take any wooden nickels or don't let anyone pull the wool over your eyes. See, if we're in the world, if we're in prayer, if we're understanding the word, not only if we're understanding it and reading it, but if we're obeying it, the world, no matter what it throws at us, can't pull the wool over our eyes. That's what he says here. Then we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's exactly what he says. I love how the psalmist says in Psalms 119, 99 through 100. This is why you should get in the word and meditate on it. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. Not that I read them. That might help a little bit. But if I want to be wiser than the ancients, if I want to walk out into that world and have confidence that no matter what it throws my way, no matter how the fake news tells me I should do this and do that, I bring everything back to the word because I've been in it and I'm obeying it. So no matter what it throws at me, thus saith the Lord is my marching orders. That's what Paul is saying here. So in verses three through eight, Paul tells us, that our minds are renewed. And since our minds are renewed, how should we think for ourselves and for, to, toward fellow believers and our spiritual gifts? He says in verse three, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's a whole message right there. <laughs> but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, maybe Paul knew something that was going on in Rome that he says this, but I think more he was thinking about the Corinthian church and everything that was going on there. We shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But that's a universal tendency of our Adamic nature. That's just the way some people are. Notice I said some people. <laughs> for I say, I'll read it again. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this can take two forms. One is the self-elevating braggart. And we've all been around some of those. I know everything, I can do everything, I have more money, just tell me your problem, your issue, and I can solve them. I've been solving them since I've been born, that's one. But then there's a more subtle one, and that's the self-deprecating person. Oh, I'm just not good for anything. Uh, and they're just wanting you to pat them on the back. But they're still just as, they're overestimating themselves because really deep down inside, they think they are something. And the Holy Spirit tells us this morning to be careful about both of those overestimation of self. But the question is, how then are we to think about ourselves? Paul says, but to think soberly with a sound mind, to be in one's right mind. And Paul continues, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 
Paul isn't saying that sound judgment comes in proportion to the degree of faith that you have. No, he's not saying that. The idea is that God has allotted to each believer a standard, a standard of faith by which to measure himself. And that standard is who? Jesus Christ. And if we look to Jesus Christ as the standard and we keep our eyes on him, we know we're very small. We know we have not arrived and we will not arrive to that statue. But what do we like to do? We always want to find that sap that's a little worse than us. And, and you hang around those guys, guys because you feel better. But God is saying, no, the standard is his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we should do. And we will never boast because we will never arrive to his standard. Jesus hints at that in Matthew 5, verse 3, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A clear focus on Christ is the key to thinking rightly about ourselves and should be the goal in our spiritual practice. That's what he wants. And then he speaks of thinking rightly about fellow believers. He tells us in verse four, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do do not have the same function. Now that word as links back to verse three of thinking rightly of ourselves. Once again, with Christ being the standard, we will be able to think accurately about the body of Christ and the rest of the body and their gifts and their functions because that's what he's going to speak to. And he speaks of three characteristics of the body of Christ. It's unity, and we are unified. If you're a believer, we're all in unity. And then we have that great word diversity. And I love that. We're all different. But we're all in this mutuality also. We're the same in that sense. And he begins to speak of that. That unity is very mysterious. And I tell the account, the story, when the first time I went to uh, Cali, Columbia, and the whole way on the plane trip, I'm thinking, man, I don't know these dudes. How are they going to accept me? I'm a black dude. And sure enough, when I got over there, I didn't see any black people. (laughs) But you know what? Those believers in Christ made me feel at home. They made me feel welcome. And that's, that's what he's speaking of. If they're a believer and I'm a believer, I can talk to you all day long. And that's what we did. That's so, that's, We, the body of Christ, is a living organism. And we all function together. And we all move together. Different diversities, different things. But we are one. And that's what Paul is trying to tell these home fellowships in in Rome. You may be Jew, you may be Gentile, but you're still one in Christ. And it's normal. We should get along. And that's what he speaks of here. If we've been born again. Second Peter, I love what it says in chapter one, verse four. He says this, by which 
have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That's every believer that unifies us. We, we derive our spiritual food from that same true vine, which is Jesus Christ. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If we are believers, we are unified, but we still must flesh it out. That's the part. The tree on God is unity. They're in unity and we should be unified. John 17, 21, Jesus, some of Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says this, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's nothing greater than the body of Christ being unified and the world sees it. But there's nothing worse is when the body of Christ is bickering and can't get along and being pulled apart. Then the world laughs and it's a disgrace to our Savior. While there exists a profound unity here, there is also a real corresponding diversity. And he lets us know this in verse 5. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are not all the same. And there lies the issue sometimes. We can rub each other different. It's not fun sometimes. You know, I love so-and-so, but I can't stay around them long. You've never said it. Uh, I like PV, but he has some moody ways sometimes. (laughs) I have to confess I do. But guess what? So do you. None of us have arrived yet. God knows this. That's why God put us together and we rub against each other just like the Lord wants us to because he's growing us into his image. I'm I'm reminded when they made the first temple and they did all the work, Solomon's temple, and they did all the work somewhere else, the chiseling. And then they would bring the pieces where the temple would be uh, put at and put them all together there. Well, the Bible speaks of the, the body of Christ as the temple of the Lord. And he's chiseling and he's working on us down here. But one day we're going to fit perfectly together. So if someone, if, if PV rubs you the wrong way sometimes, allow me to have that grace and I'll do the same thing for you. It's just natural. But what's, what's supernatural is when we when they, we do rub each other the wrong way, we just smile and says, the Lord is working on you and he's working on me also. And it's going to be all right. That's what Paul says here. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you also, notice what he calls us, as living stones. It'd be much better if we were dead stones, we, we couldn't feel anything. But he calls us living stones are being built. That's us built up a spiritual house, 
a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable, same word he uses in verse 2, to God through Jesus Christ. God's glory is revealed in the diversity of his people. This means as we measure ourselves by Christ's standard again, we are free to be ourselves. And I love that. Be your, my grandmama, I tell you, she used to say all the time, be yourself, boy, be yourself. You can be yourself. Allow me to be myself. And we will maximize the body of Christ at CR. Don't expect everyone to have your view on politics or 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 or. or teams or whatever. Don't, don't expect that. What we should expect if they call themselves believers in Jesus Christ is to love one another. It's to accept one another. It's to pray for one another. When I get, and I, don't, I doubt if it's golden gates, pearly gates, but when I get there, I guarantee you that Jesus Christ will, or if we want to put Peter there, that Peter will not say, boy, are you a Democrat or a Republican? He ain't going to say that. No, he's not going to say that. My whole family are Democrats. But I know my mama is going to be in heaven. I know she's going to be there. That's the point I'm making. Don't let those things interfere with our walk with the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Are you born again? Are you dispensing grace? If some don't have your point of view, pray. If they don't see things clearly like you think they should, pray. Love on them. Be yourself. Pray. Love on them. Do you know Jesus? Are you born again? All the other icing on the cake should not matter because it does not matter to the king. I guarantee you that. That's what Paul is saying. He says in Revelation 5, 9, when we get around his throne and they sang a new song, saying you are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus Christ, and to open his seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Holy Spirit is working. He's moving. But we have to be what he, who he's exhorting us to be. Living sacrifices. Finally, we must not stress the truth of diversity without grasping the balancing truth of that mutuality once again. Paul says we are members of one another. I'm members of you, Hank. You're members of me. You're a member of me. That's how we knit together. That's how we fit together. If I ever need anything, desperately, I believe I can call any believer in this room or any believer that knows me or watching, and they would come to my aid. And I pray that every believer here understand that that goes for them also. That's the way the body of Christ should be. 
1 Corinthians 12, 26 tells us this. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Quick story. It's going to be a short message, I think. But I may have told it before, but I'm going to tell you what blessed my heart. I think it was last year. I'm getting so old, I'm, I'm forgetting. I don't want to be Joe Biden, but I don't want to forget too much. Uh, but anyway, Nathan Carlson had won the championship. I'm watching a football game about 11 o'clock. Shouldn't have been up that late. And all of a sudden, my phone goes off. He FaceTimes me. He's on the bus with his other associates, young bucks, and he's calling me, letting me know that he scored the winning goal. I mean, this is real time right here. It blessed my heart that he would allow me to share in that. That's the body of Christ. That's how it should be. That's how this thing works. If we're yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit, each of us belongs to each other and we need each other. I'm telling you, if you're in your word and if you're in prayer and if you're doing those things and you still feel as if you're stuck and something is just not right. Get together. With the body. Spend time with the body. That'll refresh you. You won't be like the Dead Sea and it's just me. You get to pour into others. And you allow others to pour into you. And you grow like that. And then he says we should also think rightly about our gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists about 15 different gifts Some say 19 different gifts, but it's not exhaustive. It's many gifts. And we should think soberly and rightly about these gifts. He says in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Everybody that's a believer in Jesus Christ has a gift. God is a giver. You might not have one of these gifts that I list, but you probably do. But you have a gift. And you shouldn't keep those gift, that gift to yourself. When we have afterglow and we have those uh, periodically, come and use those gifts. The church needs you to use those gifts. To, once again, to bring edification to the body. So whatever your gift is, You should use it. That's why Paul, the Holy Spirit, gives us these. Having then gifts deferred according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is is predictive, but most of the time it's speaking of just the revelation, the revealing of God's word, what he's spoken to you. And you're relying that, giving that to the body of Christ. And that that word will convict, it will exhort, it will do all those things to the hearer, and it will build up the body. That's what he speaks of here. Or ministry, 
Let us use it in our ministering, whether that's uh, serving, that's what he speaks of. If you see people that walk around and they're serving all the time, they're doing different things, but they're serving the body. We don't have deacons here, but you could consider yourself a deacon because that's what that word uh, uh, speaks of. You just have the heart of serving. And that's what you do. But do it also for the glory of Christ, not to look at me, I'm serving. I think of Philip in the uh, Acts chapter 6, who was a deacon, and he blessed the fellowship there. He then says, he who teaches in teaching. Teaching exhorts. It's more knowledge. I'm giving more knowledge than prophecy. Prophecy speaks to the heart. But teaching expounds on the word of God. And then he says in verse 8, he who exhorts in exhortation. The root word of exhort means to come alongside and encourage. I love those type of people. I need to be encouraged. And I have plenty here that comes alongside and they encourage me. That can take many forms also. A word of warning, a word of advice, a word of counsel, a word of encouragement. That's exhortation. And the body needs that. It's a wonderful gift. And we should just use that gift to glorify Christ and the body of Christ. Next is the grace of giving. He says, he who gives with liberality. The word should be with simplicity. It refers to the motive of our giving. I'm giving you something because I want you to give me something back in return. No, no, no. I give freely looking for nothing in return. That's the simplicity of the giving. The problem, remember Ananias and Sapphira? They gave, but they gave for the wrong reason. Then they said, hey, we gave all, and they didn't give all. We know the outcome of that. So the Holy Spirit is saying, when you give, give looking for nothing in return. And then he speaks of the gift of leadership. He who leads with diligence, whether you are an elder or a pastor or any kind of leadership position, we cannot wing it. If you are in any kind of leadership position, we should understand that God has placed you there. And we should take that position or those positions and use them soberly. Because we're, 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 what we're really doing, we're giving these gifts back to the fellowship. We should be in prayer all the time, those in leadership, about your different ministries where you're leading, where you're leading that ministry. How can I enhance that ministry? How can I be more effective in that ministry? All of those things. You just don't get in that position of leadership and then sit down. But you should think soberly and rightly and let the Lord pour into you about that ministry, how we can do it better. And then he says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I love that gift. I love to be around people who show me mercy. And I'm sure you do also. That's a great gift. And that takes the form of aiding 
the sick, the poor. Matter of fact, we're getting a sign-up list. Lori is going to take care of it. But what I, I want, it's this special lady in our fellowship, a dear saint. And I want to send her one meal once a week, starting in the first week of December. And the reason I want to do this is because it's needed. It's needed. So once we put that on remind, one meal for her once a week, it would bless me. It would bless her so much. She's so faithful to be here. When she's not here, she's watching. And she's a precious and dear saint. And she hasn't asked for one thing. But by the grace of God, it got back to my ear. And I really want to bless her. So when Lori gets that started, we can't get enough meals. One meal a week, sign up, and let's bless her greatly. When we show mercy, we must show it cheerfully. It's nothing worse than handing or giving someone something, showing mercy with begrudgery. I'm going to do it because I know the Lord wants me to do it, but I'm not really excited about it. Don't give. But if you extend mercy, Paul says, do it cheerfully. And then he begins to speak in verse 9, how do we treat believers and unbelievers? He says this in verse 9, and it really says, let love be without hypocrisy. The Greek just says sincere love. That's all we need to understand, sincere love. And then he begins to explain what sincere love looks like. It's God's love, regardless of any circumstances. It's not phony, but it's genuine. And God knows the difference when we extend it to others. And it's not optional. 1 Peter 4, 8 says this, And above all things, have fervent love, love, zeal for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Let me show you what this kind of love is. When he says love covers a multitude of sins, it's when my brother or sister is walking in the spirit. And I, this never happens to me, but I'll use myself as an example. But I'm in the flesh that day at the church and I say something smart or kind of hard to somebody. And they said, oh, that's okay. I know he loves me. And they're not offended Because love covers a multitude of sins. They just wipe the slate clean. That's what we at CR should have. And we would never be offended because we know we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We know we're not perfect, so we might not say things correctly all the time. But when we do, Mr. Mark, sweep it under the rug. That's my brother. That's my sister. And I'm not giving phony love here. I love them. I know they would do for me. 
And that's how love covers the multitude of sin. I, I, I don't hold that and let it frustrate me and let it agitate me. I release it right away. That's what he says here. He goes on to say, abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love is genuine when it leads a person to do what's right. If you say you love someone, but you're uh, telling them to do what's not right, what's wrong, and what's sinful, that's not genuine love there. Once again, we're scrutinizing, we're proving what is good, and we know by the word of God. Verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, family-type devotion to one another. That's more than friendship. That means when Steve says, hey, PV, come over to my house and watch the Braves games, he means that. That's what it means. He then says, in honor, giving preference to one another. He says, defer to one another. I'm going to a door. I'm opening the door. And I say, hey, Jonathan, you go first. And Jonathan says, no, you go first. I say, oh, come on, Jonathan, you go first. And we fight about that for 10 minutes. And then we both go through the door. And then I say, Jonathan, can I get you something uh, to snack on? No, let me get you something. That's not hyperbole. That's what the scripture says. That's the way we should behave. Walking in the spirit, not woe is me. I'm having a bad week. Nothing's going well for me. No, we encourage. Soul, praise the Lord. He has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light in which the son he loves, Jesus Christ, is the head. That's what I should be doing for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Paul warns about, listen to this, losing steam. We start off real well. We're saved by the Spirit of God, and we walk real well for a while, and then everything becomes mundane. The world is bogging me down. The things of the world is bogging me down. I'm anxious about this. I'm worried about that, and I begin to just be ordinary. That's what Paul is speaking of here. We can't lose steam. We must run this race to the end. That's why he says in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, letting the Holy Spirit come upon us and fill us. It's tough coming to church every Wednesday evening. When I could be doing something at home, but I come because that's my call, that's my charge, and I can make a thousand excuses, the reason why I shouldn't be here this Wednesday. Now, I'm speaking, using myself as an example, but I'm really kicking it with you guys. We can make all of those excuses, but the Holy Spirit is saying, don't lose your zeal, and you need the Holy Spirit to, to be to come upon us, to energize us, to do those things. 
I know they don't want me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Lori, Brian and Lori, Pastor Brian, Lori, they've just bought a home and they're doing tons of work on it. Tons of work. And people are helping them, doing tons of work. But they come. They set aside that and they come. I can make a hundred excuses why I can't come. And you can too. That's why Paul, understanding that plain English, today's world, he says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to spur me on to do these things. As I was getting this message together, I, I was thinking about as a little boy, many, many moons ago, I'm, I remembered going to church at 7.30, and this was up to 15, 16 years of age for Sunday school. That's not my point. Right after Sunday school, 30-minute break, church for two hours, Sunday. Then at 6 o'clock, evening church. And even when I went to Gwinnett for 15, 20 years, there was a time we had evening church. Whatever happened to evening church? Does anybody go to 6 o'clock evening church anymore? Huh. Busy. Busy. Not lagging in zeal. Serving the Lord. Now I say that, not that I, because I want evening church at 6 o'clock. Not that I want you to be here on Wednesday evening. It's deeper than that. This is because I know you can watch online. This is my point. Be careful. Be careful to let all these things get in your way. And we neglect, as Hebrew says, the important thing here. We are spiritual beings. Yes, we are covered with this space suit. But we are spiritual beings. And if we're not being built up by the word of God, we're being built up by something else. That's what's important. That's why Paul says it. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. He says, rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. All of those three are natural partners there. Rejoicing in hope when the pressures of the world comes. We think about the promises of God. We hang in there while those tribulations come upon us. And while those tribulations are upon us, we should be steadfast in prayer. Lord, give me grace to handle these situations. That's why they go together here. Distributing to the needs of the saints, our care for brothers and sisters in Christ should reach down to our wallets and to our purses. That's how we show we care. And then he says, he speaks about loving, the loving actions of the world to unbelievers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, you know you need a renewed mind to do that. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us to even go farther. It's good enough if someone hurts you or offend you to not curse them. But the Lord says, no, I want you to go farther than that. I want you to bless them. That's a living sacrifice. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. First Corinthians 12, 26 again. And if one member suffers all, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with them. He says in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. We should display the same attitude toward all other people, whatever their social status is, whatever their ethnicity is, whatever their economic condition is, shouldn't matter. We should show no partiality. That's what he's speaking of. And then he says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion again. Solomon, who had the wisdom of God, he said this in Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We shouldn't be wise in our own eyes. He says, repay no one evil for evil. That's natural to strike back, to hit back. The Lord says, I will take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. You just extend that grace to them. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. By living holy lives, they will see our good conduct and praise the Lord. He says in verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Then he says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, I've heard of many different things that they say this pertains to. I've heard of one saying they used to carry coals in a container on their heads and you would have to walk straight and it would, uh, you'd have to be focused on, on things of the Lord and all those things. But really what it is, it's a metaphor. The burning pangs of shame. And what I mean by that. If someone is upset with you, if someone is playing, giving you the cold shoulder, you treat them with love. You be persistent in loving them, praying and hoping that they will come to repentance. That's what it's about. You, you, you continue to show love and treat them with respect and you honor them. And in the long run, they're going to look bad if they're still holding a grudge against you. That's what he speaks of here. The worship team can come up. Then verse 21. And this refers back to this entire chapter. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That can be tough. But we have a renewed mind because we're born again. And we should be in the word, renewing that mind daily. And we should be in prayer. 
So when those things happen, we can give them to the Lord. I will close with Romans chapter 6, verse 4 again, because it's very pertinent to this. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the way it is. If we are born again, if we are who we say we are, we should walk in newness of life. We should present our bodies to Jesus Christ as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable, once again, reasonable, logical worship. Logical. It's logical for me to give everything to the one who's given me everything. It's logical for me to lay my life down on the altar when I wake up in the morning and all day long. That's logical. Can you sense where it's not? That takes commitment. That takes living for the then instead of the now. And that's what the Lord has called us to. So as we go out, from this place and start another week. Remember the charge. Remember the call that the Holy Spirit has given us. That famous two verses that speaks of how much we love the Lord. Let's not be like Simon the Pharisee, but let's be like the woman who gave undivided allegiance to the Savior by her commitment to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, that's what I want. And some days I'll be the first to confess. I crawl off that altar, not on big things, but even in the small things I crawl off. Lord, You've given me, you've given us your all. And you also demand our all. There's no, I'll think about it. If I feel like it that day, I'll do it. No, that's the goal. That's what we committed to. When you said, Jesus, Jesus, you said, All others have forsaken me. Will you forsake me also? And Peter said, where else can we go? For you have the words to eternal life. I'm crawling on the altar. And by your grace, I'm staying there. Lord, give me that extra measure of grace to stay there. Lord, because we want to live for you. We want to be exactly what you've called us to be. So give me that fervent, diligent to be in your word, to be in prayer, to be in fellowship with the believers that I may grow as I should into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be sure to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and close with the song, please.